Welcome to the Alex Mejia's podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, my guest is Dr. Tiffany Jana. Tiffany is the founder of TMI Consulting and the author of several books on the issue of diversity and inclusion. And this conversation is just great. There's so much packed in there, and uh, they really know what they're talking about when it comes to uh, building an equitable workplace. And I think it's something that a lot of early stage companies really struggle with. So I'm hoping that this conversation provides some really practical guidance for companies out there who are looking to build an environment that is equitable, um, that is diverse at scale. And Tiffany has written several books on this. Uh, They have tons of awards that I can't even get into right now. And they speak all over the all over the country and probably all over the world. I'm pretty sure about these issues. So I think what they have to say is going to be amazing, and I'm really excited uh, to to get this uh, interview out into the world because I think it'll be really helpful to to a lot of different companies in a lot of different places. So without any further ado, here's Tiffany Jana. Tiffany Jana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are very welcome. Uh, We have a lot to talk about. You have written several books. You speak all over the country. You know a lot about a lot of different things, a lot more than I do. (laughs) And uh, so I'm excited to, to, to really dive into a few different areas of expertise um, that you have and excited to help early stage companies think about some really important issues around, uh, diversity and, co- and uh, inclusiveness and, and company culture. And the exciting thing about early stage companies is they have an opportunity to build that into their DNA. And so I'm hoping that folks who are out there who are in, you know, maybe just a founder or, or a couple of co-founders or early on can learn from you um, how they can build uh, an inclusive and equitable company. So let's, let's dive right in. Uh, how would you when you when you think about uh, an inclusive company, what how would you define that? So inclusion deals with how we invite people to join the work. So how do we invite people to come to the table to bring the best of themselves, their talents, their skills in service of what we're trying to accomplish in the organization? So the you know the opposite of inclusion is exclusion. So when you 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 hear about people who work in places where they feel like they don't get to do the best, their best work every day. They don't get to do the things that they're actually skilled at and interested in every day. Or worse, they, are, they actually feel sidelined and marginalized. They don't feel like they have opportunities for development. They don't feel like their voices are heard or that their presence matters. Um, and when it comes to you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, if you attach those kinds of sentiments to marginalized demographics, so if I'm a woman and I feel like the culture is really optimized for a bunch of dudes and my being my presence as a female is not you know appreciated and is you know also disrespected that would be exclusive that would be an environment that is not welcoming that is not inviting women to join the work so inclusion is all about how do you make people feel a sense of belonging how do you feel like they have a place and that their presence is valued yeah and as you guys have have been working on on this um, what what are some of the common ways that, or, or, or what does, do you have some examples? I mean, you gave a great example of, you know, a culture that's sort of um, centered around a, a male 
a, like a, a bro culture or something right. like that. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how else to, what else to call it, but like, uh, but are there, how do you think about, uh, some of those categories of, of exclusivity, um, like that? Yeah. So, I mean, any, any kind of, um, so, I mean, if you, if you start in the center, the protected categories, so Title VII protected categories, so the places where you're legally not allowed to discriminate. So right. um, when you're talking about race, religion, national origin, color, et cetera, right? Um, ability, these are places that you can't discriminate without, you know, you can, you can get in trouble if you do anyway. So um, another really common one that is often overlooked is ableism, right? Mm-hmm. So are you, are you cultivating a workplace and an organizational culture that creates room for people who are differently abled? Um, are we thinking about, you know, people's ability to see, to hear, to ascend a flight of stairs if your office is in a place where you, you know, you don't, you're not ADA compliant? Um, is that actually welcoming? Could you actually hire someone who uses a wheelchair or mm-hmm. is mobility challenged? Um, so these, you know, you can take this all the way to various extremes, but when you're trying to build a culture of inclusion, there are a lot of things to consider, both from the sort of cognitive diversity, how do we mentally, emotionally, you know, uh, allow room for people to join us at, all the way through to, you know, the physical adaptations. You might have a, um, you know, a Muslim person who prays five times a day. Do you have hmm. a quiet space for someone to go and meditate or pray? Um, these are these are the kinds of inclusive acts that build cultures where people want to be, people from various backgrounds and various mindsets. Cool. So if I am I if I'm a founder, um, there are I, I guess sort of like two states that you know you could find yourself in. You are a founder. You don't have a physical space. You know, you might be working out of your home or a co-working space. So some of that stuff might be off off the table. And then there are, you know, folks that have physical spaces mm-hmm. that have a lot of other considerations. But when you're getting started, if if I'm if I want to build an inclusive and equitable environment, what are some of the things that I should be thinking about or doing early on to build that directly into the DNA of my law firm, say for example? Yeah, so the most important thing is to think about you, you, you need to have a, a very strong awareness of yourself as a leader, as a founder, right? You need to have a strong awareness of yourself because the default position on building culture, period, much less inclusive culture, uh, the default stance on building culture is that we as founders replicate ourselves. We're comfortable with our work styles. A work style is a really easy one because it's not, it's not tied to any particular demographic, but if I'm introverted and I like to work in an isolated, quiet space, and you've got nothing but an open floor plan with a whole lot of noise and distraction, it makes it very hard for me to fully participate in the work. So things like that. Um, as founders, we replicate ourselves, um, our interests, our comfort levels, and we find ourselves duplicated across the organization. So the first thing is to understand you know, what is the difference between the vision, the mission, the goal, what we're trying to accomplish and things that just make me comfortable because they're who I am. Right. So when you're hiring, you know, it's so tempting and so easy to hire people that you like who remind you of yourself and your friends. And honestly, and you know, in a, in a startup environment, in a new workplace environment, you want to be comfortable. You want to be in a space that, you know, that feels good. Um, but just like it is wise to hire for your own deficiencies so that you've got complementary skills and you're covering things that you know aren't easy for you to do, it is also wise to diversify the kinds of folks that you are hiring, to think about not just 
you know, do I want to have a beer with this person? But also, is this, you know, is this person bringing some aspect of diversity, some richness to the culture, to the organization that's going to help us relate to our clients better, that's going to help us think about problems in new ways? If you replicate yourself over and over again, you will find yourself in an echo chamber and it will be much more difficult to innovate around creative problem solving and, you know, and new solutions to, to new challenges. So it really does behoove people to consider uh, diversity and inclusion as they are growing their organizations. Totally. And I think that uh, in particular, um, m people who find themselves in the, in the uh, demographics that have traditionally had more power, um, you know, Caucasian males, you know, for instance, uh, have to, I, th I love what you said about being aware, recognize that like that is a cultural you're located within a culture and you mm -hmm. have a way of doing things that's not necessarily normative. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is located within your experience as a white male, for instance. Um, and I think that uh, being aware of that is actually really critical, like you said, um, to being able to build something that isn't, that you just sort of, without thinking about, but like you said, just replicates that over and over again. Right, so. and it's a really hard thing to have that awareness. I I believe that as leaders, that is one of our 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 bigger challenges is to really reside in a sense of awareness of who we are and how we're impacting other people. It's not something that we're often forced to look at. We can be incredibly successful without really ever, you know, sort of reckoning with with who we are. Right. And it's important if you, again, if you're if you are trying to build an intentionally inclusive environment, that becomes important. And the reason you want to think about this at the beginning of your organizational journey, um, or at the earliest moment that you become aware of it, is because if you are successful in the ways that you want to be successful, then you will likely find your organization growing. And at, as those growth stages unfold there will be an increased focus and desire and probably need for diversity on all kinds of levels. If you've not started out or thought about optimizing your organization for inclusive behavior, then the diversity that you add later on will actually prove incredibly challenging to integrate mm. because you can actually cultivate inclusive behavior um, and, and, and nurture an inclusive culture, even if you've got relative homogeneity. So you can have mm. lots of people who you know, yeah. went to the same schools or are just like you, who think a lot like you, but if you are intentional about, about creating a culture that welcomes difference, that welcomes you know, diversity of opinions, that knows how to you know, handle conflict and challenge each other in ways that are productive, then later on when you add all different kinds of folks from different walks of lives who think and act differently, then it won't be so incredibly disruptive that it stops the work. Right. Yeah, and one, um, one example, uh, shout out to my uh, former employer, Foster Maid, who you've helped um, before, and, uh, you know, they put diversity into their stated values. Right. Um, and I think that that was wonderful on two levels. One was that it communicated something to everyone on the team, mm -hmm. but it also helped uh, create some accountability and just a, a thought process for everything that we did as a company. And so I think that that is an interesting way, like you're saying, of even within a relatively homogenous environment, stating that intentionally yeah. prepares a company to 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 uh, have a diverse and equitable work, workplace at scale. And that also helps attract folks. It's one of the biggest things that I hear across the board uh, with organizations, particularly in you know spaces like the tech sector, right? People have a hard time with recruitment. And 
one of the challenges is that, you know, if I'm a, a person of, you know, a historically marginalized identity and I look at your website and I don't see myself reflected at all, much less, you know, in your leadership ranks, then it's very difficult for me to discern whether that was by design or by default, because there still are a significant number of organizations and founders who really don't want any kind of diversity. And it's too much of a lift for me to do the work to find out whether or not you're one of those. Hmm. And so even if you don't have visible diversity, and there are, you know, lots of dimensions of invisible diversity, you can, you're, you're probably have more diversity that you think, than you think even sure. if people look alike. Yeah. Um, but if, even if you don't have the, the visible dimensions of diversity easily accessible by someone who might be interested in working with you, having a statement, not a, you know, not a BS, you know, EEO statement that everybody kind of has to have for right. legal compliance, but something that is, you know, thoughtfully crafted, that speaks to your values within your organization and what you're trying to do in the world, that can actually go a long way towards um, giving people a little bit of, of encouragement to actually press that button and seek you out. Yeah. So if I'm a company and I'm maybe a little bit further down the road and and I need to start figuring this out, <laughs> what advice would you give to companies that might have you know, 10, 20 employees who haven't really been thinking about this, um, where, sh where should they start? Yeah, so the first thing I would do is, is really kind of gauge for that inclusive behavior piece. Like, are you guys all, all are you able to tolerate challenges to the system, challenges to the status quo? Are people able to speak truth to power? Are people able to express divergent views and opinions without, you know, adverse repercussions, for instance, right? Um, because you you don't want to just throw diversity into the mix kind of later stage because then you get the revolving door syndrome. You'll have lots of diverse, qualified people who get hired and then promptly leave, right? Mm. Because what they recognize is this organization has been optimized for everyone except for me. So you really do want to think about, you know, are we, are we, are we nurturing a space where people um, do feel included, where they feel a sense of belonging, and where it's clear that regardless of who you are, you, you could be successful here. Um, and that, that takes a little bit of work. That takes some introspection. That, that might take some, you know, intentional team meetings and conversations and restating of values and saying, you know, you know, we just want to, you know, be intentional about the culture we're crafting. Because that's the challenge is that culture creates itself, whether you intend to have one <laughs> created or not. Yeah. And as founders, we're focused on our service, our product, you know, what it is that we're delivering into the world. We don't tend to focus intentionally on creating and crafting our culture. And that, I think, is a massive um, sort of shortcoming. That's something that, that we, we need to be intentional about because culture can, can kill your organization yeah. um, if it's not intentional. So um, start to be intentional about what is the day-to-day -day lived experience that you want your teammates to have? What is the day-to-day -day lived experience that you want um, your employees to have? And as you begin to define that, then you can start reaching out into the world and saying, oh, by the way, we're awesome. Like, here's who we are. Here's who we aspire to be. We're not all the way there yet, but we're working on it and we're being intentional about it. So before you bring in diversity, name and state and begin to craft what is that culture that you want so that I know that you're working towards it. And then after that, you know, one of my favorite, you know, just sort of hacks in this space is for every, you know, every skilled trade, every certified trade, every, you know, every, every, you know, professional association that you can think of, there's like 
eight minority equivalents, right? Mm, so if you've yeah. got the certified public accountants, you know, the CPA uh, association, there's a national certified public accountant association for Asians, for Hispanics, for African-Americans, like, <laughs> for women, right. right? And all of these associations and all these groups are meeting on a quarterly at the least, but usually monthly basis. And they're always looking for programs, for information, for connections. Hmm. Someone within your organization, if you know, it doesn't have to be the founder, but someone should start finding where these organizations are and showing up and saying, hey, we just want to build a relationship with this association. We want to let we know whether we're hiring now or not. We're looking to, you know, we're, we're in a growth mode and we're trying to anticipate and we'd love to get to know your net members, love to do a presentation, love to sponsor something. Uh, because again, as the underrepresented folks who are looking for employment, if you don't already have that representative diversity, we're not sure why that is the case. So you have to take the extra step to put the welcome mat out. And showing up where we are speaks volumes. That's why lots of like huge corporations have uh, strong relationships with HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. They show up where we are and they say, hey, we've got opportunities. We're looking for qualified people or we're looking to nurture the pipeline. And that would be my second piece of advice is think about the long game. You're planning on being in business for the next 35 years, right? right. So think about the long game. If you're looking for everyone to be you know, qualified now and today, then, you know, maybe, maybe you won't have that much luck because everyone is looking for the same folks. But if you start building relationships with universities, with community colleges, mm. with high schools and middle schools, if you're that ambitious, we're seeing people have really great success thinking about the pipeline early because the same people who were belly aching about this 15 years ago, had they started working on the pipeline back then, would have a whole crop of eligible folks from all different backgrounds. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that is, that is very practical, actionable, easy <laughs> low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. um, that can really make a, a long a, a difference in the long term. So I, I love that suggestion. Uh, I, we, I know we we kind of had a, an order here, but I'm going to deviate from the order a little bit. Actually, no, I'm not. Um, can you talk? And and I guess these next two topics are related. Um, your your I don't know which book it was. The last one or the one before talked about institutional bias. Yes, that was my um, second book. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, can you define that and and talk a little bit about about institutional bias and what that looks like in the workplace? Yeah, so the second book was Erasing Institutional Bias, and essentially the idea, my first book was Overcoming Bias, and Overcoming Bias was like an independent study on identifying your own unconscious bias and what to do about it. The second book, Erasing Institutional Bias, took that to the next level, and if we are willing to accept the fact that all humans have bias, it's part of the, the wiring, the hardwiring of the human brain, if humans are intrinsically biased, then so are the systems that we build. Um, and so Erasing Institutional Bias was about providing folks with a framework uh, to, through which they could examine the structures and systems within their own organizations and begin to uh, critically examine them and kind of dismantle the bias that has been built in. And the kind of institutional biases that are built in are, are what we call structural barriers to inclusion, so systemic barriers to inclusion. What are the policies, procedures, the ways of doing things that you have built into your system that are causing people to be treated in disparate ways or that are preventing people from fully joining the work. Um, and they can be, you know, th these things tend not to be intentional. So it's not about, hey, I'm a whole racist and I'm building a bunch of policies to make sure that, you know, right. certain people aren't successful. No, it's not that. It's, you know, things like 
Um, you know, people will have handbooks. Like, hey, it's great if you're at a point in your organization's, you know, growth where you actually have an employee handbook. Kudos right. to you. Sometimes those handbooks have language in them that is exclusive that right after you hire somebody, you make them feel all kinds of alienated just by the words that you chose or mm. the words that somebody in HR or some template online chose in order to, you know, articulate things like the dress code. And the dress code itself could be weirdly, awkwardly gendered and not appropriate for an inclusive environment. So there are lots of opportunities to be intentional, again, about how you communicate to people and how you sort of reduce those barriers to inclusion. Um, so yeah, erasing institutional bias is just all about looking at what are the structural barriers that are keeping people from having um, experiences. Like, can we, can I show up within the context of your organization and be successful? Can I rise through the ranks and become part of the leadership team, regardless of the demographics that I show up with? Um, evidence of possible, you know, sort of uh, systemic bias could be things like if you have an organization that's, you know, that's growing, you got, you know over you know, 25, 30 employees maybe, if all of the diversity that you do have is concentrated at the lowest level of your organization, you might have some structural barriers to inclusion. Again, not necessarily intentional, but if the only folks who are showing up at the top of the organization happen to be one gender or one race, that could be something that you've built in without even realizing that it's so. A lot of them end up being uh, the functions of, of sort of subjective practices that have to be examined. So in order to build an inclusive culture and mitigate and reduce that, that institutional bias, you wanna be really intentional about what you're trying to create. Yeah, and I recommend uh, reading, reading that book. There's a lot of, I mean, just, it's got a lot, it covers a lot of ground in terms of all the different types and categories of institutional bias. But I think the important thing for folks to remember is that it is not obvious necessarily. No. Mm -hmm. And that's the danger is that and it, it's something that is a lot of times unconscious or on, you know, you're, it's not, a, these are not stated policies we're talking about. These are patterns of behavior, ways of thinking and, and operating. Um, they can uh, be stated policies, okay. but they're not necessarily, they're not exclusive to stated policies, okay. yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So like one of the, I think the, the scholarly contribution that Ashley Diaz Mejias and I made to the, to the world was in expanding the notion of retribution bias, right? Yeah. So retribution bias is the tendency to favor punishment over rehabilitation, punishment over community. And we have you know, actual policies, stated policies, that uh, create disparate sentencing for people based on the kind of drugs. So when you think about crack cocaine right. versus powder cocaine, sure. same freaking chemical, but who uses crack cocaine, who uses powder cocaine, sure. and we've got the, the outcome of that is that we have a massively disproportionate number of African Americans who are, are incarcerated for the use of the same drug, but right. because the policies, the sentencing minimums are different, um, that creates a disparate outcome. So they can be policies, yeah. but it can also just be, you know, the way that we do things. My favorite example from, um, from the book was our actual, our publisher, Barrett Kohler Publishers. They looked around and their, you know, their whole, their whole jam is we're going to make the world a better place. We're going to publish books that make the world a better place. I'm really proud to be published by them. They looked around and they recognized, well, holy crap, we're like, mostly all white people and we didn't yeah. mean to do that and right. again that, that's not a, that's not a crime yeah. but when they're trying to be intentional about representing the world they realized that they weren't and so they they had to do some examination and they thought okay so where are we getting our employees from most of their employees were coming from their internship program they went and deconstructed the internship program what did mm. they find their internship program was an unpaid internship program mm. so this was a structural barrier to inclusion because an unpaid internship 
is only something that it, that someone with privilege can afford. Right. To have a whole entire full-time job yep. and not get paid for it. And so they realized, well, hey, here's an opportunity. They created a paid internship program and they cast their wet, their net much wider in yeah. order to find a more diverse demographic of folks. And now, you know, several years later, they look like the United Nations. Yeah, that's great. That is a really good example and, and one that I think a lot of companies um, stumble on um, in terms of how they think about um, internships. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, I had, I had a thought um, there, the other uh, element uh, that I wanted to, to, to chat with you about in terms of uh, institutional bias was you mentioned retribution bias. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of companies, specifically larger companies, have these sort of blanket rules as it, as it relates to criminal backgrounds, right. felonies. Um, and one of the one of the most destructive um, elements of the war on drugs and the way that criminal justice in this country has been skewed uh, to uh, to disproportionately affect uh, communities of color is the collateral damage of having a felony on your record. Exactly. Um, and there have been different types of initiatives like Ban the Box, but there are companies that have just you know straight straight policies if you if you have a felony you know you you can't you can't work here or or certain types of things right. and i think sometimes it's it's a shortcut of like you know we're not going to look into this um and and i have and I, and i you know have had relationships with people who may have made a mistake didn't understand the consequences mm -hmm. of a plea bargain right so they may have even been in a situation where they could have had a, a completely different outcome and not had a felony at mm -hmm. all. But because the way that the criminal justice system is set up, um, there's so much pressure to take a plea that they take a plea. And now, years later, 10 years later, every time they get hired, you know, they're, they end up losing their job a week later right. um, because of that. And I think companies could go deeper um, and, and actually find out what's going on there, not make that sort of an on or off switch mm -hmm. um, because uh, they recognize that it's not a black and white thing that's happening within the criminal justice system. You can't just take someone who may have a felony and say, that person is a criminal, that person's untrustworthy. Right. There's a whole story behind Absolutely. how they got there, and it's happening within a context right. um, of... of uh, of a bias, really. Yeah, I, I think it's important for people to. I mean, if you if you can pull from your own life and you know anybody who's committed any kind of infraction that's left them with any kind of record or committed an infraction, made a mistake, and were able to get off because a lot of time resources allow us to you know kind of escape those consequences. Think about those people and whether or not they're the kind of people that you would be willing to hire. Um, and then recognize that just like, you know, a lot of people are, are afraid to hire folks with disabilities because they're afraid of the accommodations and all the things we'll have to do and how do we talk to them and how do we, you know, create space for them. And what, what I know about both folks with felonies and folks with disabilities is that because of the stigma around hiring them and how difficult it is for them to, to, uh, to acquire gainful employment, they are some of the hardest working, most loyal people you will ever find. When you create an opportunity for someone and you see past you know, judging someone based on the worst mistake they ever made. No one wants to be judged on the worst mistake yeah. they ever made. And the fact that that, that, you know, that scarlet letter gets, you know, emblazoned across people for life is horrible. When you can look a little bit deeper, find out the story and create an opportunity, 
I'm telling you, like nine times out of 10, you find people who work really hard and end up being incredible assets to your organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could talk a lot more about this. I want to be mindful of your time. I, I do want to shift gears now. Um, I want to talk about B Corps a little bit later, but your new, your new book that's comes, coming out soon. Yes. March, March, 2020. All right. Coming out soon is called uh, subtle acts of exclusion and it's about microaggressions. It is. Can you talk to me about microaggressions? <laughs> I feel like I'm just going to put it out there. I'm sure that like I do them all the time and I have, and I have examples of them that I hit myself on the head about, but, um, can you just for, for folks out there who may not know what a microaggression is, yeah. can you, can you shed some light on that? A microaggression is, it's, it's one of the, the, the things that we do where we sort of inadvertently cause people harm. So, um, you know, doing things like calling an, uh, a person of color, an African-American person articulate, it sounds like a compliment and often <laughs> people mean it as a compliment, yeah. but the assumption is that you expected me not to be able to speak uh, <laughs> right. when you call me articulate, right? Um, you know, a micro, there are physical microaggressions, you know, reaching out and touching a black woman's hair, you know, you don't have bodily autonomy. Please respect my space. Yeah. Um, so there are uh, things that people say and do often around um, around uh, marginalized identities, or around around identity. Period. Uh, that that cause harm often without meaning to, and they don't often cross the line of like an actual, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> like a, a, a violation that's going to get you like an EEOC lawsuit or something right. like that. Um, they're small, but they're the kinds of things that you know, death by a thousand cuts kind of deal. Yeah. And so the first thing that we're trying to do with a subtle acts of exclusion, we use the acronym SAE, is rebrand the word microaggression to SAE because just like if I call you a racist, you're not going to be motivated to make better choices. You're going to be defensive and, right. and pissed off, right? And accusing people of microaggressions, naming them microaggressions immediately gets people on the defensive when most of the time they weren't actually intending to cause harm. Yeah. And so the idea that, that we rename this a subtle act of exclusion um, kind of tells, you know, speaks to what it is. It's something often subtle um, that just makes people feel a little bit marginalized when what we're trying to do, particularly within the context of our organizations and arguably within the context of our communities and cultures, is bring people in, help people feel a sense of belonging, help people feel welcomed. And so like the other books that I've written and co-authored, um, it's very kind of step-by-step. Step. How do you understand what they are? How yeah. do you identify them? And what do you do to disrupt them? Not only when other people... Uh, commit them and you're a witness because we do want to encourage people to not be bystanders and just watch and go, Ooh, that was gross. Um, but actually speak hmm. up, you know, and become allies and, um, co-conspirators and help people, uh, rescue fo folks from those situations and also help educate the people who are committing the microaggression. It helps with not only that, but also with doing this, the critical self-examination that's required yeah, totally. in all diversity work yep. where you've got it, you have to understand again who you are, yeah. how you affect people, what what nonsense is on your hard drive that needs to be re-examined. So providing people with skills and tools to hopefully avoid committing so many microaggressions because again, most of the time we're not even aware that it's happening. And I do think that, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there's kind of a call-out culture and people are, yeah. you know, getting tagged and named. Um, on the other hand, people are still, by and large, I'd say very uncomfortable uh, naming things. And, and, you know, the average person who isn't really doing this work is not going to stand up to racist Uncle Bob or, you know, subtly exclusive Aunt Jane when they say or do something. And so we want to help people increase their cultural fluency so that they, they can do something um, that is, you know, a, a proactive choice rather than 
feeling victimized along with the person that was insulted. Yeah, and and, and I mean, it resonates with me when you think about um, that introspection, when mm-hmm. you realize you have these uh, cultural ticks <laughs> that you you don't mean to do, and and a, something may just come out of your your mouth. Yeah, and and before you know it, you can't you can't grab it back. Yeah, and and you know it's not you know, calling someone like a racial slur or something no. like that. But it is, it is something that does sort of nick at that person's identity. It does. Um, and, and it's painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so recognizing um, when you're doing it, I think is, uh, is critical. Uh, but it's also, it can be, it can be painful yeah. for, for you. And, but it's important, it's important work to do. And, yeah. and I, my, um, where I've stumbled on this, just to, you know, just to talk about it is just, is, is with like pronouns. Mm-hmm. I, it's just been, a, and, and it's, it's just the stupidest thing that I just, I've struggled with. And, um, I and, struggle. I changed my pronouns to they and them and okay. I'm a storyteller. I refer to myself in the third person often like a proper narcissist should. <laughs> <laughs> And I still she myself yeah. and refer oh, to myself really? as a little girl all the time. So I, I identify as uh, gender non, non-binary um, and I use the, I prefer they and them pronouns, but I'm not offended by she, her pronouns. Okay. Um, be, precisely because I mess mine up all the time. Yeah. Um, the only thing I don't like being called is miss, but I like to have grace for humanity. I think it's, I think it's a very different expression when you are transgender and, yeah. you're, and you're flipping from one yep. to the other and there is no room for you to identify with right. that space. That's very different. Um, but, you know, for, for like all many of my other intersectional identities, I rest very much in the middle of the space. But um, it, is, it is challenging. Yeah. It is challenging. Yeah, and I, um, you know, growing up as a dude, uh, <laughs> I, use, I use a lot of man, bro, dude. Yeah. I mean, I even call my daughters. I say, dude, you got to stop. Um, and I don't know how I feel about that. I feel part of me feels like maybe it's a good thing. Part of me feels like maybe it's a bad thing because I, I want to be careful with, um, stewarding, you know, their, their gender identity and, and it's not something that they really understand. And so I, I, I recognize that in these, you know, these early stages of their lives, they're picking up on so much and the way they think about <clears throat> Excuse me. The way they think about themselves is informed heavily by yes. by us, by what they see on TV, um, by all these external things. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't really um, gotten to a place where they can, you know, define themselves internally and then express that outwardly. Right. Well, for what it's worth, Dad, these new generations are incredibly adaptable when it comes to this stuff like okay. they you know they these young the younger kids are 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 doing things like using they them pronouns for people just as a as a standard course because they're not privileging g- the gender binary yeah. Yeah. um as a, as a default so they're coming up with you know even even if you i mean it's great that you want to get it get it right at home or, or open up um more perspectives at home but i promise you that through school <laughs> they yeah. will they will be become friends with and be identified with all kinds of different things and their cultural fluency will be much greater than our own yeah that's good well that's good to know <laughs> Having raised two successfully and one middle schooler still in the house, I'm, uh, yeah. I definitely see the way. Like, I get confused because, you know, younger kids, even even 20-somethings, they are referring to people 
without gender and it's confusing in the conversation. I'm like, who are you talking about? Right. Are you deliberately obfuscating <laughs> their identity? I need a picture in my mind. Right, right, right. <laughs> Is it wearing pink or blue? And I'm right. like, oh yeah, these are old paradigms that we've got to purge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, that's, that's encouraging. I mean, I definitely... Yeah, it makes me feel old, but that's okay. Um, well, this is great. I want to talk just for a second. I know we're we're running low on time. This has been an amazing conversation. So thank you. Thank I'm you all. It. Good. I'm so glad. Um, and we've been like very um, we've been very professional. It hasn't really <laughs> devolved in any way. So that's good. Um, uh, we've known each other for a while now. So um, B Corps. I mean, I, I think I think um, hopefully this will kind of. Uh, relate to everything that we've been talking about. I know that, you know, B Corps are go beyond just that, um, the, the issues of, of inclusivity and, and, and equity. Um, but I wanted, but I know that you, you've also, uh, wrote the second edition of the B Corp handbook. Yeah, um, with Ryan Honeyman. <laughs> nice. And so that's, and, and, and your companies are B Corps. They are. Um, and so... And wait, we just, <coughs> as of today, can announce it that we are Best for the World, third third certification cycle running. Wow, congrats. Yes, That's amazing. Best for the World overall top 10% scoring worldwide for global efficacy. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, look at that. I've got a <laughs> superstar. Um, so can you just give folks a, a quick overview of what a B Corp is? Because I get, I get, I get, I do get people who ask about this. They say, "Well, they're thinking, they may be thinking about being a nonprofit or a for-profit, yeah. and they're like, well, should I be a B Corp?'" And I think they may confuse kind of how all those different things yeah. interact with each other. Yeah, I mean, other. they're related. I like the, my, my my relationship to the nonprofit uh, world is I like to say that we're a for-profit company with a nonprofit heart. Yeah. And so, you know, I came from nonprofits and sat on many nonprofit boards, and the you know the idea of chasing funding forever just you know did not appeal to me. I, I like the idea of, of generating your own um, sort of economic engine and, and using that for good. And so it is using the power of business for good. It's the idea that, um, you know, sort of creating its new economic sector um, that kind of turns capitalism a little bit on its head and allows us to not only enrich the, you know, the, the sh traditional shareholders, yeah. um, but to expand our shareholders to include our stakeholders. So we're looking at our community, we're looking at our workers, uh, we're looking at the environment as equal stakeholders in a, you know, in an, in an economic process, um, you know, that's, that serves the greater good. So it is, it's a it's a new way of doing business, and you know those of us who are part of the sector. B Corp is one part. There's this, the entire social enterprise sector right. is what B Corp falls under. Um, you know, sort of doing business for good. But those of us who are involved in it definitely feel that um, it is it is the way forward because our our workers are being exploited, our environment is being decimated. Um, you know, the the standard economic way of doing business is causing harm and is creating disparate impact and disparate rewards. And we do think that there is room for everyone uh, to be enriched, for people to be fulfilled, um, and for our environment to be protected. And the B Corp sector and the social enterprise sector is trying to take responsibility for that. Quick plug. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I have a, I'm co-sponsoring a um, the People First Economy Online Summit. That is, it's it's on September 18th. So I don't know what okay. when this is airing, it but will, yeah. We'll, we'll, no, no, no. We'll, we'll be just before it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, it will be. Um, we're, it's a free online summit, so people can sign up and they can, you know, sort of listen and watch things live um, with lots of thought leaders from across the world. It's really nice. awesome. But there's also available opportunity for people to access it afterwards. So cool. Good stuff. Excellent. Wow. <laughs> um, and if if you know if you're a company of one or two, can you can you be a B Corp? 
Absolutely. Most okay. B Corps are actually. So okay. we are represented across um, across all, uh, all sectors and or industries anyway, and sizes. So we've got some publicly traded B Corps, and then we've got lots of B Corps that are onesies and twosies, um, and that's the, the vast majority of the engine. So it's about, again, being intentional about the kind of organization that you're building. Yeah. And that's precisely why I had my first company certified uh, back in 2012 was because the, the B Impact Assessment is a free online assessment that allows you to measure the impact that you're having in the world and the things that I had to be accountable for and measure and quantify and define yeah. that early in my business trajectory allowed me to grow my business in some intentional ways that I wouldn't have considered for at least another decade. So if you're thinking about you know, making room for people, being inclusive, like the inclusive economy challenge was a whole B, the whole B Corp sector coming together and saying, we want to affect greater change specifically in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. And so there are metrics around that as well. Awesome. Well, we've come to the end of our time. This has been incredibly fun. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for your time and all of the amazing information that you've shared. You're doing some amazing things and really grateful for all of your work. How can people connect with you? What, what's your preferred way if somebody wants to reach out and talk more or, or learn more about what you're, what you're up to? So I'm Tiffany Jana on all social media. Um, I'm, I'm most active on Instagram. I actually control my own Instagram account. Everything else will get to me, but um, tmiconsultinginc.com if you're interested in the work that I do. And then I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, everywhere. Definitely like my uh, my author page on Facebook and follow me on Instagram, and you can get an inside inside look at uh, all the various things that are happening over here in this world. It is fascinating <laughs> and never boring, I assure you. <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. 